to them. Blessed are those who are sad, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are free of pride, they will be given the earth. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for what is right, they will be filled. Blessed are those who show mercy, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, they will see God. Blessed are those who make peace, they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who suffer for doing what is right, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Thanks, Tara. Well, before we consider these wonderful Beatitudes, I firstly just want to present these two gentlemen uh, with a certificate of baptism. So, Ray, congratulations. God bless you. Don't feel... You can... You're right. You want to stand? Yep. Congratulations. Let's give Ray a big hand, shall we? Congratulations, Ray. God bless you. God bless you. And Vresh. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah. Let's give Vresh a hand as well. Please join me as I pray for these two wonderful men. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for Vresh and for Ray and the significant moment that we've witnessed in them giving public declaration to their faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Lord, we ask your blessing upon them as we know it is upon them because your Holy Spirit dwells within them and their life eternal is secure in Jesus. Uh, Thank you for their willingness and their obedience to be baptised this morning and thank you that we had the privilege of witnessing that. We ask, Lord, that they would know the pleasure of your smile upon their lives this day and forevermore as men who are sons of God. Amen. Um, Also, just real briefly, if you're a guy and next Saturday morning you're interested in a beautiful breakfast uh, and some wonderful spiritual nourishment as well, I'd like to invite you to come along to the men's breakfast here at the church, 8am. Doug Southern will be our guest speaker. We've got a lovely breakfast prepared. If you're able to come or interested in coming, please just indicate this morning by signing the sign-up sheet in the foyer, and that way we can cater uh, correctly. And then next Sunday morning, uh, we we have a a breakfast at nine for the whole church family, so please come along and enjoy that time together. We have a very special guest, Dan Warlow, um, who is a a wonderfully gifted um, children's musical entertainer, but he certainly appeals to all people, particularly those who are young at heart. We're going to have a really, really fun time with Dan, and I encourage you to come along and be part of what will be a great family service next Sunday. Well, our focus this year is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And you might ask, well, why? Why are we focusing on Jesus this year? At Erinert Community Baptist, our mission is to be a loving church, knowing and sharing the life-changing message of Jesus. If we're going to know and share about Jesus, it's really good if we know more about him. And finally, our vision is to grow Christ-centered disciples. So it's a really good idea to focus this year on the person and work of Christ. Moreover, and more importantly, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 
12 says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. So important that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because it is in him that our faith continues to grow and find uh, perfection in him. Uh, throughout, the to- throughout the course of this year, we're effectively focusing on Jesus' works, what he did, his words, what he said, and who he is. So at the moment, we're considering what Jesus said. This series is called The Message of Jesus. And Jesus had quite a lot to say over the course of these 10 weeks or so during term two. We're just taking little snippets of various things that Jesus said throughout his life and ministry. Um, We started uh, three weeks ago in Mark chapter 1 with that message of repent and believe. It was one of the first messages that Jesus gave. And repent means to turn around, to change the way you think, and to believe means to put your trust. So to change the way we think, change the way we think about even God, to change the way we think about Jesus and the kingdom of God, and to put our trust in him. Uh, Then we considered the mission statement of Jesus as Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah in Luke 4. And essentially the heart of what Jesus, what we learnt there is that the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the Messiah prioritises the least of these. It was an offensive message, if you will, to those who were in the gathering that day. And the message and the ministry of Jesus is extended to everyone. It is not just for those who are Israelites or followers of God. It is extended to all people. And then last Sunday, we heard from Luke 10, 1 to 9, where Andrew spoke to us, where Jesus sends his workers into the harvest field to bring both healing and hope, proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And we're reminded that many workers are, in fact, in the harvest. (laughs) Uh, And that as those workers hear, as people hear the good news of Jesus and some come to faith, they go on to tell others and so forth. And the gospel message grows and continues to extend. This morning, we come to the Beatitudes. And this is also very early on in the life and ministry of Jesus. Somewhat of a, an ordination sermon that Jesus will give on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes is right at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has uh, just selected his disciples. And the Sermon on the Mount, which we're not looking at the Sermon on the Mount today, just the Beatitudes, but that kind of insight, that entire sermon, in a sense, really summarizes what Christianity is all about in its, in its essence. It's kind of how the kingdom of God functions. And Jesus takes many of the laws and turns them completely upside down with how people expected things would be. Um, one author has coined the Beatitudes as the beautiful Attitudes. I think this is a lovely phrase. And the Beatitudes kind of means um, blessedness, those who God's, God blesses. And so what we see in these um, eight Beatitudes is a little bit like a pocket guide to life in the kingdom. And Jesus gives a summary of kingdom values, and they are completely different to worldly values. The the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety, what Jesus is doing there is, in essence, painting a picture of the priorities and the practices of the kingdom of God. And it is, again, very, very different to what people expected. These are the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. 
So why don't I just take a moment to pray before we get into these eight Beatitudes. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come and just examine these upside-down values of the kingdom of God, they're upside-down in contrast to the values of this world that we live in, pray that your Holy Spirit will breathe new life into these very familiar words to many of us and help us understand once again what it is to be part of your kingdom and to be members of King Jesus. And we thank you for the wonderful promise that is found within them that when we seek to live according to your will and your ways, we are truly blessed. Help us to receive that blessing and to live out that blessing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Beatitudes kind of are bookended by this statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is indeed what the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is, the the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The first four Beatitudes really focus on our relationship to God and the second four, the final four, focus on our relationship to people. We're just going to walk through these. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, The last shall be first. The Beatitude is all about the lasts, who in God's economy and in God's kingdom are the first. The Beatitudes actually flesh out what it means for the last to be made first. Now, there's this repetitious word, blessed. Um, Some translations might use the word happy. Um, I'm using this morning, I'm going to be drawing on the New Living, which says God blesses. Uh, But certainly these these attitudes, these values, um, attract the blessing of God. Now, when we think of blessing, and I've shared this many times before, it is easy for us, particularly in our Western culture, to consider um, material wealth, um, a successful and secure career, um, what are other things, good health, uh, relationships free of conflict. If we experience these things, it's, it's very understandable and very natural for us to frequently say how blessed we are. And I would often even say, gosh, we're blessed to live on the central coast. We just live in such a beautiful part of the world. And there's nothing wrong with these things. They are good in and of themselves. But in God's economy, that doesn't equal blessing. In God's economy, to be blessed effectively means to have the approval of God upon your life. The way that you're living your life, the way that you posture your heart... And your attitude toward God and others, that is what counts. And it's actually far more to do with the internal than the external. All those other blessings that I mentioned are all external things. But what God is really looking at, as we know from 1 Samuel 16, God is looking at our hearts. 
And so as we go through each of these Beatitudes, we're considering what it is, like what draws the approval of God. Another author said, to to be blessed by God is to be smiled upon by God. Just as I I used that imagery this morning of God smiling upon Vresh and Ray and the decision that they made to be baptized. What a beautiful thought, to be smiled upon by God. So if you want to be smiled upon by God, to know the approval of God, well, these are the values that he is looking for in his people. These are the values of the kingdom. And remember, to be part of the kingdom of God is to be serving under the kingship of Jesus. And this is the way that Jesus rolls. And so this is the way that people of Jesus are to roll. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In the NIV translation, it'll say, poor in spirit. So what is being referred to here is spiritual poverty, if you will, spiritual inadequacy, uh, spiritual bankruptcy. There is a, a recognition that spiritually speaking, in and of myself, I am poor, regardless of my external circumstances, without the work and apart from the finished work of Christ on the cross, we are all spiritually poor. We're spiritually bankrupt. Without Jesus, we have no spiritual credit, if you will, before God. I love how David in, um, in the Old Testament expresses or models, if you will, spiritual poverty by saying, who am I? And we see this on a few occasions. 1 Samuel 18, David says, who am I? And what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law, David exclaimed. My father's family is nothing. Again, we see David repeating this same phrase in 2 Samuel 7, 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge and recognize that apart from God, we are spiritually bankrupt. That is poverty of spirit. I love how this beautiful hymn, Rock of Ages, really summarizes this so beautifully. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Matthew 5, 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this isn't talking about mourning, just kind of the regular um, ups and downs of life. Rather, it's actually having that state of mourning over the recognition that before God I am a broken and sinful person, Uh, that as hard as I may try to, to be a good person and to do good things and to please God with my good works, that again, there's nothing that I can do to earn my way to heaven. And so to mourn over the sinfulness of our, of our very existence attracts the blessing of God. It's very much about being authentic and about being real about what is ultimately going on. 
Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous, not even one. There's no sort of scale of this person's better than that person. In God's eyes, we all fall short. And a good day arrives when we can take an honest look at ourselves and actually mourn over the sinful state of our lives. This brings pleasure to God when people humble themselves before him. A great illustration of this is found in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. He reaches the lowest of lows when he is feeding slop to the pigs. And we see him reaching that point of of mourning, if you will. And remember the blessing that came to him when he just acknowledged that and returned home to his father. God blesses those who mourn. Matthew 5, 5. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. I'm reminded of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the tax collector beats his chest and he humbles himself. There's no pride in this person. He recognizes that before God, he is broken and he is unworthy. And Jesus finishes that parable in Luke 18 by saying, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see how each one of these Beatitudes just feeds into the other. Uh, This whole idea of just recognizing that apart from the finished work of Christ, we have nothing to bring, nothing in my hand I bring. And what God loves and what God longs to see in people is that broken sense of humility that recognizes that apart from you, Lord, I have nothing. And it is to those that Jesus says they will be exalted. Matthew 5, 6, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. You know, a person who hungers and thirsts, you think about this, when you are hungry, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about the next meal. And I find this every afternoon, come about three, four o'clock, I'm starting to think, oh boy, I wonder what's for dinner tonight. And when Bron picks our boys up from school every afternoon without question, the first question is, what's for dinner, mum? And when we're hungry, like it just consumes our thoughts, doesn't it? Or if we're thirsty, if we've been exercising, we've been in the heat and we just need to, to be refreshed. When you're hungry and thirsty, it kind of dominates your thoughts. And it's the same thing, like when people hunger after God, when people have that spiritual, that inner desire to want more of God, to draw closer to God, God draws near to them. God looks upon that state of hunger and thirst with favor. And the wonderful thing is, we will be satisfied. You've heard the saying, you are what you eat. And it it actually plays out really well in the spiritual realm as well. What's your spiritual appetite like? If you have a spiritual appetite that hungers and thirsts after God, then you will be someone who feeds on God's Word. You will be someone who delights in, 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 in filling your mind with um, the things of God 
and you will, you will enjoy those things because in doing so, your, your hunger for God is going to be satisfied. He is going to speak to you. He is going to illuminate his word to you and refresh you. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so I pray that as we fix our eyes on Jesus this year, we would be people who are well fed. We are people who are well nourished because we are constantly eating from the word and feeding on the word of life. God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. A person who is able to show mercy more often than not is a person who has received mercy themselves. And a great illustration of this is Joseph and the mercy he extends to his brothers in Egypt after they had traded him or sold him to slave traders. You see, one of the ways that mercy is expressed is in offering forgiveness and offering grace where it's not due. When you read the story of Joseph, he didn't have to forgive his brothers, but he had known and received the mercy of God. And it was from that place that he was able to extend uh, the mercy and forgiveness to his brothers. We who have placed our trust in Jesus have been forgiven much. God has been merciful upon us. And so one of the ways that we express that mercy is to extend mercy and forgiveness to others, even others who have wronged us beyond measure, just as Joseph had experienced. Matthew 5, 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure for God, for they will see God. What does it mean to have a pure heart? I was thinking a little bit about the idea of pure water. And one of the things about a, a really clear, clean cup of water is that it is unmixed. Uh, there's nothing murky in there. Uh, I've got relatives that live in the country. And when you go to run a bath, it's not clear water. And uh, it is fine to bath in, but it's a very different proposal. It's certainly not water that looks attractive to drink. A pure heart is a heart that is unmixed towards God, a heart that is undivided. It means that your heart is given over primarily to God. Now, in reality, how many of us have pure hearts towards God? I don't think there's any person in this room that could put their hand up and say, I have a pure heart that is unmixed. The only thing I'm devoted to is God. Like we deeply desire that, don't we? But the reality is there are all kinds of things that are competing for our heart's attention. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of um, hope in this regard either. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we read this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. The reality is that our hearts are mixed. Our hearts are not pure. And the only way that we can receive a pure heart is for God to do a spiritual transplant 
and give us a new heart, a heart that is no longer divided between all of these other interests and pursuits, but a heart that is aligned with the will and the ways of God. And we read in Ezekiel this wonderful prophecy, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The only way that you and I can receive a pure heart is to go all the way back to the beginning and recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are inadequate to have any kind of pure heart toward God other than God doing an inner work by his Holy Spirit through us. The Beatitudes throw us to rely wholly and completely upon God. And at the end of the day, if we were to summarize the Beatitudes, it is God blesses those who earnestly look to him and seek his face and recognize that in and of themselves, they have nothing to offer before him. Is this not what baptism has represented this morning? These men have come and witnessed to us Spiritually speaking, before God, I have no way of being made right with God apart from the work of Jesus Christ. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Notice how the New Living Translation says, work for peace. The New International, the NIV says, peacemakers. But there's a, there's a real sense of being actively involved in bringing peace. It's not just a passive kind of being a peacekeeper, it's being a peacemaker. And in order to be peacemakers, we have to first of all know and experience peace ourselves. And when we humble ourselves enough to become wholly and entirely dependent upon God, the scriptures say that a peace will come upon us, a peace that passes all human understanding. And it's only then when we know and understand and have experienced the peace of God, the peace of Christ in our hearts, that we can begin to be those who work for peace in this world. You know, bringing peace to people and being peaceable people is something that God looks upon uh, with favour. I love this prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, harmony. Where there is error, truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets who were persecuted in the same way. Isn't this fascinating? We've gone from peace to persecution. How is that? When different values collide and they can't find resolution, that's when persecution occurs. And you see, when we take the values of the kingdom into the world, there is a clash, a collision 
of values. The kingdom of heaven, the values of the kingdom of heaven and the values of the kingdom of earth are going to result in persecution. And that's why Jesus ended up on a cross. And that's why so many of his followers gave their lives for this great cause, because they were seeking to live the values of the kingdom. And it rubs up against the values of this world, and oftentimes it will result in persecution. But what does Jesus say? When you are persecuted for me, rejoice, be glad about it. Know that you are in very good company. You're in company with the prophets, and you are indeed in company with me. A person who experienced great persecution for living out their faith was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed at age 39 um, as part of a conspiracy to try to overtake Hitler. And in his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called, called upon to suffer. Bonhoeffer understood that to follow a suffering saviour, in a sense, meant to be a suffering follower. You know, when we consider the Beatitudes, ultimately what they, what they hold up to us in a mirror is the character of Christ. And it is overwhelming for us to try and think about how we can embody all eight of these Beatitudes. But as I said, I invite each one of us to simply humble ourselves, to bow our hearts and our knees before God and say, God, without you, without the work of Christ, I have nothing on my own that I can offer you. And from that place, God can do awesome things in and through you. Another final quote from Bonhoeffer. Having reached the end of the Beatitudes, we naturally ask if there is any place on this earth for the community which they describe. Clearly there is one place and only one, and that is where the poorest, meekest, and most sorely tired of all men is to be found, on the cross at Golgotha. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him it has lost all, and with him it has found all. We lose all through the waters of baptism, through dying to self. And as we rise to new life in Christ, we find all that we need because in him is hope and healing and life forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning so much for Jesus. And because of Jesus, because of what he did, we can humble ourselves. We can die to self and rise to new life again in Jesus and live our lives in that pattern. And so, Father God, I pray this morning that we may pattern our lives after you, a life of dying to self and living for others. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for this wonderful reshaping of what it is to be people in your kingdom and to live by your values and your priorities. Lead us by your spirit, I pray, in the ways of Jesus. For his name's sake, amen.